Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Thanks again for all the kind words about our new look for season two. Keep the messages coming. I'm at Ian Andrews DC or at Chainalysis on either X or LinkedIn. If you've been watching the American Congress lately, it probably doesn't surprise you to hear pundits don't expect any meaningful forward movement related to crypto in the near term. Somewhat quietly though, the US Internal Revenue Service might have sidestepped the ongoing gridlock with some significant rule changes. This week, I'm joined by Chainalysis Global Head of Tax Strategy, Roger Brown, who breaks down everything we need to know about the IRS's latest proposed tax regulations on digital assets. Roger explains the scope of the proposal and dissects the impact of these new tax rules on crypto exchanges, payment processors, decentralized platforms, and even DAOs. We also explore the overlap between these proposed tax rules and the forthcoming travel rule requirements. Although I consider Roger to be my personal tax expert, it doesn't mean he's yours. So please remember, our podcasts are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. You should consult your own advisors before making any of these types of decisions. Last thing before we jump into the episode, I'm excited to announce that our Chainalysis 2023 Geography of Cryptocurrency Report is finally available. We've been sharing excerpts from the report over the last few weeks on our blog, and if you head down to the show notes, you can download the complete copy today. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Public Key. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today I'm joined by Roger Brown, the Global Head of Tax Strategy at Chainalysis. Roger, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Ian. I appreciate it. Now you were a guest way back on episode 41. That was in preparation for crypto tax season. I think most of us survived, at least you and I did. We're still here. You know, in your first appearance, we, we talked about your background. You spent seven years inside the IRS in the office of the chief counsel. You spent a decade at Ernst & Young working on domestic and international business tax law. You've been a professor at Georgetown. And more recently, you've become the best expert that I know in digital assets. So as we were talking before we started taping, you've you've lived on the road, it feels like, the last couple of years. But today, I really want to talk about some updates to domestic tax situation here in the US. You recently wrote a blog on this, which we'll link to in the show notes for people that want to go even deeper in this conversation. Maybe let's just start with the high-level summary. What's the news out of the IRS? Uh, the news out of the IRS is the IRS has leaned very heavily into information reporting. So in 2021, Congress passed IIJA and it effectively amended the information reporting rules that apply to crypto. In short, it said brokers is the term the statute uses, have to report basically trading information on people who facilitate the, the sale of crypto assets uh, for customers. And that was a 282-page proposed regulatory package that'll take effect uh, for sales after January 1st, 2025. So we've got a little bit of time to get ready. <laughs> it's a little bit of time, but for people who have to build systems, it's a lot because most people will tell you it takes a year to build and implement. And 2024 is around the corner. We don't have final regulations yet. They're just proposed. So the IRS has a public hearing, I believe in November, where they'll solicit comments. They'll take it uh, on board. They're required to give consideration for the comments and they'll put out a final or temporary regulatory package that has the force of law. These regulations do not. And then people will know exactly what the requirements are. So people have already talked about that. Please push back that 2025 date for transactions occurring after. 
um, we'll see if the IRS is sympathetic or whether they provide some kind of interim relief or report this, but you don't need to report everything. But we'll see to be determined. Maybe let's start with who do these regulations really impact? I mean, ultimately, it's it's you and me and citizens of the United States who have to think about this in filing. But I think the burden with these regulations is really, as you said, on the brokers. Who's defined as a broker in the context of digital assets? It's a great question, Ian. And at the clearest example of a broker is a, an exchange, a crypto exchange. As everybody would accept, that's what everyone thinks to be a broker, even though we don't call them brokers, because they, quote, affect sales of digital assets, that's who is clearly within the scope. Then it goes to others like payment processors and ATMs slash kiosks. But then a lot of the action is in the phrase of what the regulations call digital asset middlemen. And that's an important phrase to drill down on. And digital asset middlemen effectively are any person, I'm going to come back to what a person means, that provides facilitative services with respect to any digital asset sale. And you think, what is a facilitative service? Well, the regulations define it as a facilitative service. And it means that a person is in a position to know the identity of the party making the sale, i.e. the customer. And then the second prong for who's a digital asset middleman is that the person is in a position to know the nature of the transaction giving rise to proceeds from the sale. And I can get into, if you want, what those, those prongs mean, but I'll first focus on person because I teased that a bit. A person means not only a company like an exchange, a centralized exchange, but it also can mean a decentralized platform that's providing access to trading services or a DAO that's effectively, it does what these are these facilitative services. You're blowing my mind a little bit here. The first part I followed with, so an exchange where I log in, you know, they've got my identity. I've done my KYC where they take a picture of my ID. Long time ago, I bought some Bitcoin. Today I log in, decide to sell some of that Bitcoin. In that case, it makes total sense to me where that exchange falls under this definition, right? They've mm-hmm. enabled me to, to sell that. They know both my cost basis, because I bought it there, and that gain, and they know my identity. So it mm-hmm. seems to check off all the boxes that you listed there. But when I think about a decentralized protocol, I've used a few of those in my day, and, and I can't remember ever providing identifying information. And in many cases, I, I can't recall ever actually buying an asset on a DEX, although I suppose I could have. Uh, more often, it's it's a swap of an asset that I held that I acquired someplace else, I think, in most of those transactions. And so it seems that you're lacking both the cost basis information in a lot of those transactions and certainly lacking identity information. So what would a protocol do under these regs? It seems like this is suggesting a lot more than, oh, I just need to start sending out forms to my customers. This would be a wholesale change of how that that protocol's operating, or am uh, I going too far with this? You're spot on. And it's important to say the regulations are not really concerned about what the current state is. They're telling you what you will need to do in the future. So that's the first resting point. The second resting point is identity and then come to knowing basis. The regulations say that, I'm going to paraphrase, if you are a decentralized protocol and they clear 
clearly in the regulations are looking at DAOs and these centralized platforms. You're in a position to know the identity of the person because you're providing access to that particular protocol. And if you're providing that access to an automated market maker, a trading platform, again, emphasis you're in a position to know, then you satisfy that prong of you're in a position to know the identity. The second prong goes to you're also in a position to know that the nature of the transaction is a sale. Because when you swap one asset for another asset, that's a sale under the tax rules. So you clearly are recognizing gain or loss from that swap. You also have basis in a new asset, but you're selling the first asset. You talked about, but the broker may not know what my basis is because I bought it somewhere else. And you're absolutely right. They don't. But you can't report what you don't know. And if you don't know that, then at least for the first year of the regulations operation, you won't have to report the basis. And I suspect when the regulations are in final form, if you don't know the basis, um, and there'll be instances where you don't, you don't report. But the important feature of this, and this is actually in the preamble to the regulations, the IRS in an ideal world would get a Form 1099. And for, for people in the U.S. who are listening to this, it's basically the forms that exchanges or brokers today give their, their, their customers. And it just tells you what your gains and losses are. But at least providing one number on the sales proceeds, it tells you that Ian Andrews or Roger Brown has a gain transaction. And then you get a copy of that form. Government gets a copy of that form. And you're incentivized to report that income now. Because you know the IRS is getting the same information. So that, that is really important. And the IRS says where there's inadequate or no information reporting, the incidence of non-reporting is more than 50%. So this is about tackling that tax gap where if there's no information reporting, that just people are not self-declaring the income. And there's actually a, a government accounting office study that actually said only 900 people in the entire United States reported crypto gains between 2013 and 2015. 900 people out of like 150 <laughs> million taxpayers. Coinbase alone publicly said that they had 2 million customers. If you just think about 900 over 2 million, and obviously Coinbase didn't have every customer in the world, uh, in the United States, you know, it's less than one half of 1% of people reporting crypto. So that's what these are really in addition, you know, reaction to the absence of effective third-party reporting motivated Congress to act. And then these regulations are effectively the flesh on the bones put out by the framework of the IR, of the Congress in 2021. This makes a lot of sense to tackle this this tax gap problem, right? You know, I think in normal civil society, everyone paying you know reasonable share to support the public good. I'm I'm uh, I'm fully supportive there. The thing that that I'm still going back to though is like practically speaking, how do some of the the entities that are going to fall under this broker definition are they likely to be able to go about meeting this requirement? DeFi platforms are one. I kind of wonder about things like uh, network validators, right? People running a Bitcoin or an Ethereum node, are they falling under this? Broker? broker definition as well? It's a great question, Ian, and people were very concerned about it. And in the legislative history, two senators um, had a colloquy where they said, 
it's our intent that miners, stakers, etc., are out. The IRS respected that in the proposed regulations. And if all you're doing is providing uh, services around a consensus mechanism, then the fact of you're doing that, you're not in these rules. You do have to think about whether you could be in other information reporting rules that could apply, but these rules, you are not. So that is the, the first piece. The second piece you asked about how could they apply. And the IRS in their preamble solicits comments on technology solutions that brokers, whether it be centralized or decentralized, could use to satisfy the information reporting. And what these effectively are, basically customer onboarding, getting your tax ID number, knowing who you are, and then reporting that information to the government. And importantly, it's foreign and domestic brokers. They don't distinguish uh, at a high level. Mm. So they're going to be imposing these obligations on it. Technology solutions, and I'd refer to you know any experience that you've had where you have onboarded to a centralized exchange, which I'm sure you have, and I bet you dinner of your choice um, at a restaurant of your choice, you probably didn't have to speak to a human in order to onboard. Correct. You had a fully technological experience with regard to putting in your name, KYCing yourself, and then being authorized to trade. I suspect that experience will exist for what is a decentralized exchange. And if you want, I can get into what could be out. But for the today's decentralized exchanges and the majority of the trading volume occurs on five of the largest decentralized exchanges. And I think those in their current form will be subject to the rules and effectively have a customer onboarding experience that will resemble what you see in centralized exchanges. I mean, this is pretty amazing if you think about it, right? The the gridlock that we've seen in Congress and you know, various attempts to to get through that gridlock to drive some meaningful uh, forward progress on digital asset regulation. And the IRS seems to be sidestepping all of that and could be the ones that actually bring DeFi to the table on on real know your customer type implementations is, is kind of amazing. I want to touch on that because you raised a really important point, Ian. So we've seen a lot of regulatory actions around decentralized uh, trading platforms that the CFTC in particular has brought. And a lot of the action has been you're an exchange, you're a person, you're subject to the CFTC's rules. The IRS has not brought litigation that I'm aware of um, applying any of the existing rules of information reporting and there are some, to decentralized exchanges. They haven't done that. They're issuing proposed regulations saying this is, these are the rules that will apply to you at this future date. We welcome comments, but right now we're not suing you for noncompliance. So putting aside whether or not they could do that under existing law, they're literally regulating by notice and comment in the regulations rather than enforcement action. And that is what some people in the industry have complained about with other regulatory agencies to say, you're not publishing guidance, you're suing me. So I would think the IRS couldn't be accused of being susceptible to that. And I think in fact, to the contrary, should be applauded by putting out what they think to be the right approach and then soliciting comments before they take enforcement action on the rules. It's a great approach. I think it's how how we all feel government is supposed to operate. I'm curious, in your blog, you have a section on what to report. You know, most of this, if you've ever seen a 1099, you know, anyone that's ever bought or sold, you know, equities in the U.S., 
has probably gotten one of these 1099 forms. It's fairly consistent. Of course, it adds things like the wallet address and the transaction hash. Uh, so this can be traced back to the on-chain activity. But the one that stood out for me here was that transactions involving stable coins are subject to reporting here, which struck me as a little unusual given that a stable coin shouldn't vary in price. So therefore shouldn't be a taxable event necessarily. But maybe I'm missing something here since I'm I'm not the tax expert and you are. What why are they including stablecoin transactions as being a, a something that needs to be included in the reporting? I think in a couplefold. Number one is um, there can be volatility um, in stablecoins, as we saw that the, the Terra Luna is an example where people lost money and they need a complete universe of, of taxable gains and losses. And number two, when they are computing gains and losses, and there are many retail commercial products out there that people can you know access companies to compute their gains and losses in crypto, they need a complete universe of data. And stable coins are effectively just another type of digital asset. And you when you're swapping, you know, Bitcoin for stablecoin and the stablecoin for Ethereum and then XRP and back to stablecoins, you need an effect a complete universe. And the IRS is gonna have to have some effectively data matching, data reconciliation process, much like uh, the commercial tax calculators exist today. And they're ingesting all that data. So if in my mind, it goes to the data completeness, even though there may not be volatility in your stablecoin, and if all you're doing is swapping one stablecoin for another, for retail goods and back, et cetera, yes, you're going to have no gain and loss, but the vast majority of people are doing something with other crypto and their stablecoin. So I think it's a matter of uh, data completeness. I I wasn't surprised at that, quite frankly. I'm kind of thinking, and maybe this is future casting rather than present day, but, you know, using some USDC or some Tether to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, right? Maybe when they start accepting retail payments in in crypto. Under these proposed regulations, would that mean that then makes Starbucks a broker in that context? Or perhaps an intermediate payment processor becomes a broker and is subject to reporting on that transaction? It's a good question. And the retailer itself is not a broker. The regulations are clear. So they literally say if you pay your landscaper in Bitcoin, even Bitcoin that has volatility, clearly, that is not a transaction that's subject to these rules. Oh, great. Okay. So they're giving you that clear out for the payment processor, then they may have an information reporting rule obligation because they are in these rules and that's their business anyway. But for normal retail products and the the retailer itself is not subject to these rules. Effectively, I think a pro crypto uh, approach. And I think the notice and comment piece, you know, people I'm sure will address the stablecoin aspect. And again, emphasis, these regulations are proposed, so they don't have the force of law yet. And would the IRS carve it out? Um, possibly, or could it be that the ecosystem, the brokers who are subject to it, they don't want to be put in the position of differentiating between assets, and they just want to report everything because it could be just easier for them to say, you know, if they're offering functionality and payment for Bitcoin, payment for Ethereum, payment for USDT, it could be easier for them just to write one rule. And again, computers are doing all the reporting, obviously, not humans sitting behind, you know, some kind of walls, you know, pressing the buttons for what's reportable, what's not. So it'll be interesting to see how people react to that. 
And your point is a good one, right? It's probably easier to report every interaction that I've had with my exchange. Anytime I'm transacting, buying or selling, just include it. What I was thinking about when I first asked the question was really this retail or commerce type of use case and that if suddenly it puts a burden on people who today don't have to report any of their current transactions, it, it kind of puts a hurdle to them starting to adopt or accept digital assets as a form of payment if, if it did trigger that. So it's good to realize that they don't. I'm curious, what are the payment processors reaction to this? Because you know, I, I think today about Visa and MasterCard, like I don't get tax reporting from Visa and MasterCard today, but presumably, you know, either the digital asset native payment processors or the ones that already exist in the ecosystem, I can't imagine that they're eager to to take on this burden. Yeah, that's right. But and let me address two pieces. There's actually an existing rule in the tax code that if you buy something from a retailer with more than $10,000 in cash, they effectively have to do reporting on you to the IRS and they have to mm. KYC you. So that's an existing rule in this existing statute. That was amended also in 2021 to apply to crypto. So if you now were a retailer accepting cash or crypto more than 10K, the IRS, to my knowledge, just hasn't come out with rules yet on the crypto for more than valued in 10K, but they have for cash. So that's the first resting piece, that there will be certain people for big transactions. And then we said then for less than 10K, there's no cash information reporting. There's no crypto information reporting by the retailer. We will see where things end up with regard to the payment processors because they could have, when you on board with them and the payment processors today, you know, are effectively taking your, you know, linking to your bank. So they've effectively KYC'd you and now affecting the payment because you're actually, they're, they're facilitating payments between bank to bank. From my perspective, and again, I haven't had the luxury of chatting with them, would they take the existing information where they've already KYC'd you or effectively have your banking information and effectively use that kind of documentation for, for crypto payments as a result of this. In effect, if they're facilitating the payments of things other than stable coins, and obviously existing payment processors allow Bitcoin and other non-stable assets like that, then the IRS wants a complete picture. And ideally, you know, our tax system is not built for enforcing individual IRS examiners and putting the burden on the IRS to do really detailed tax calculations on a taxpayer by taxpayer by taxpayer basis. You really want the IRS computer computers to do that work. So I think that you want, if somebody's disposing of Bitcoin in exchange for a Tesla, if they don't get that information, then the IRS systems won't get it and somebody could be not reporting gains and losses or they'll be taking their built-in gain crypto and buying retail goods. So it's about a neutral perspective, the government to say, whether it's gain or loss, we just want to know so the computers can do the calculation. How does the travel rule intersect with this? And I know that we've got, depending on the jurisdiction around the world, kind of variety of interpretations and timelines around travel rule. But this feels like the information that, that will eventually be collected as a result of travel rule solves some of this lack of information on identity and end user. Am I thinking about that correctly? I think you're spot on, Ian. In our blog, we refer to an insightful piece by Nota Bene on the state of the travel rule. And I I welcome people to read it because it talks about really adoption around the world and what it requires. And for travel rule compliance, exchanges, VASPs, payment processors, will effectively have to 
KYC not only the customers for whom they're acting, but also know the beneficial owner of the accounts where they're sending. So, yeah. so it actually is broader than just the tax rule, where the tax rules are just saying, who is your existing customer? So that's the first piece. And second piece is when you're onboarding them and you're taking a KYC for travel rule compliance. And the PII, personal identifiable information you're requiring, may vary per jurisdiction. If you're getting tax ID number and address and documentation, you're effectively satisfying that. It could be the case that the tax rules go a bit further because if I see Ian Andrews and let's say Ian Andrews has a cousin who's in Belgium and that person says, hi, I'm Belgian. I'm a customer of this European exchange, but there's indicia of U.S. status, which can occur by your Belgian cousin sending crypto to a U.S. address that's known as a U.S. crypto address because it were U.S. VASP, or they're accessing their account from the U.S. and there's a U.S. internet service provider providing that access. Now, all of a sudden, the tax rules say there's U.S. indicia. So now you got to obtain effectively a WA bent, which is just a, a tax form that says, hi, I really am foreign. I certify under penalties of perjury. Uh, I really am foreign. In answer to your question in short, there is great overlap between the travel rule information and the uh, what is required for tax, but I could see that the tax go a bit further. I think the technology solutions that allow people to comply will merge, and there are a few vendors out there that do pieces of this, and I think whether it be the exchanges or the payment processors or the decentralized exchanges, I think they're going to have to leverage those solutions, bundle them together, and then satisfy two birds with one stone. Satisfy travel rule with tax information reporting with the same stone. How should we be thinking about peer-to-peer -peer exchange, me sending some crypto from my wallet to your wallet, which depending on the reports you read and the analysis, like that's a substantial part of transaction activity in crypto. You know, it doesn't involve a DeFi protocol. It doesn't involve a centralized exchange. It's just two people exchanging funds. Does that get addressed at all in these regulations? I think it would go down to, does it qualify as facilitative service? And if the platform is in a position to know the identity because they are providing access to seeing the other person's wallet, seeing what they're going to do, and they're in a position to know that it's a sale because they know they're affecting a swap of one asset for another. I could see peer-to-peer -peer exchanges being in. You know, the IRS is going to cast a broad net with regard to who's going to be in. in what I really see being out are people who write software and launch it into the ecosystem and no longer are providing access or the gateway to that. So if that's what you've done, you're a pure computer programmer and have published a protocol that you no longer have continuing interest, you're not receiving ongoing fees, you're not setting the terms and conditions for how people are um, interacting with it, those people will not be brokers. So there's going to be clear DeFi platforms, I think many of which uh, exist today will be in, and then uh, there's going to be a, a migration of some of those activities towards DeFi when it's so sufficient decentralized, they're out. And that's actually consistent with the FATF guidelines, the Financial Asking Task Force guidelines that are actually referenced in the preamble to the rules to say there will be some DeFi that is so decentralized that it's out. It's interesting on that topic of the range of decentralization versus centralization in the in the DeFi 
uh, landscape. What we've seen a number of protocols do as it relates to compliance and, and kind of keeping bad wallets off the platform is they've implemented technology at the web app layer, but not really at the protocol layer. So if you're a sophisticated technology user, you can go straight to the contract and interact with it, bypassing the web app layer. Less sophisticated actor probably using the web app gets caught in, you know, has to pass through some of these compliance checks. Is it likely that a similar kind of model ends up here in, in the tax world where if I'm using the web app, I might need to supply my personal identity and my tax ID, right, for those KYC reporting purposes. But if I'm savvy enough to go direct to the contract, I can bypass all that? I think you're right. And I go back to the linchpin of to whom do these regulations apply? And they're not applying to software programmers, if that's all you've done. And they're not applying to computer code. What they're doing is they're applying to persons and someone controlling a web interface, a centralized company, is a person that's providing that access. So they would be subject to it. And as you say, if a person is accessing directly the smart contract without a computer, and this has been some some of the arguments you've seen in the litigation involving um, the regulatory agencies that are not the IRS, where the argument is computer code is not a person. And that may be right, but a DAO probably is because a DAO is probably a partnership under the U.S. tax concepts. And there's actually a regulation uh, that's been in the books for a long time that's saying a group of people acting together in a business enterprise is a business entity and a business entity is a person. This has been super informative, Roger. Last question for you. We, we have a lot of people who are in the compliance profession or you know run crypto businesses. It seems like there's some time between the now and when these regulations take effect. But what would you suggest that any one of those people listening you know, does as a next step after uh, enjoying this podcast? My suggestion would be to assess the effective KYC obligations. I don't think it's a matter of if they'll apply. I, I think it's a matter of when. Make sure that you have the right time to do that. Engage with the IRS and Treasury because they're all years. Whether it be from a tax regulatory perspective or non-tax regulatory perspective, the trend is clearly towards KYCing people. So I think uh, aligning to that trend and focusing on the core business venture rather than have this regulatory obligation and similar regulatory obligations, travel rule, etc., control your business. And that may be technology solutions around putting identity on an NFT in your wallet that the protocol can read. That may be doing proper KYC or using some of these technology solutions what CFI is also using today. Getting ahead of these and make sure you have time to adopt. Amazing. Great advice. Roger, thank you so much for joining me on the on the program. We'll have you back again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, you can follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now, if you listen to this podcast regularly, then I promise you won't want to miss our upcoming webinar titled Global Crypto Adoption. Does regulation matter for growth? It starts November 2nd, 2023 at either 11 a.m. Eastern or 3 p.m. GMT. 
It will be hosted by Chainalysis Director of Research, Kim Grauer, and our VP of Public Policy, Caroline Malcolm, who will bring you the latest insights from the 2023 report. The duo will explore the unique forms of crypto usage across the world, the role of policy, and how it plays in crypto markets, and provide you with an understanding of the current crypto landscape, including why Central and Southern Asia have merged at the forefront of crypto adoption. Head down to the show notes and click the link to register.